This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Narkarni. When your mother walks into her living room looking for her car keys, she might fail to find them because of the clutter of her knickknacks and souvenirs. But is that the only reason? Why does the retrieval of a memory fail more in older people than younger folks? A recent study in the journal Trends in Cognitive Science suggests that the clutter of memories of older people can affect the speed and accuracy of getting access to useful memories. The authors suggest that your grandmother's brain holds a hoard of memories that is similar to the knickknacks in her living room in the form of the remembered experiences and emotions she has gathered through her long life. So navigating toward a single memory is a lot harder in her brain space than in a younger brain, which has a far smaller accumulation of stimuli. But we'll find that there's an upside to the cluttered brain as well. Our guest today, Dr. Tarek Emmer, is the lead author of the study. He's a cognitive psychologist who carries out research at Columbia University and Harvard University. Tarek, welcome. Thank you for having me. Tarek, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. I found your article fascinating from both academic and personal perspectives. Um, You start your paper with an intriguing phrase, wisdom and knowledge grow into old age, yet the literature on memory shows that intentional episodic memory declines with age. How are we to account for this paradox? And so you and your co-authors make the case for brain clutter being the responsible agent. And I think of clutter as the stuff that we sort of accumulate and find tucked in cupboard corners of our living rooms, and getting rid of that clutter is considered a virtue, a freeing and calming element. So as a 67-year-old person, I am very curious about the brain clutter that you describe. But let's make sure we have a a common vocabulary. Let's, Let's define clutter. Could you, do you and your colleagues have a definition of clutter that you used in this study? Yeah, sure. So uh, the example I give is actually pretty good. And uh, we can think of uh, the information that's present in memory as similar to the kind of clutter that you uh, explained that is present in the environment. So uh, memory representations can contain all sorts of different types of information that might be attached to a target piece of information. So it can include uh, some prior knowledge or knowledge-based details It can include as well uh, representations of information that were present in the immediate environment when you were encoding a specific piece of information. Um, And it can include all sorts of different types of information that can lead to this kind of clutter. And I want to make sure that I understand a term that you use quite frequently in your paper, which is representations. Can you define that for me and our our listeners? Essentially, um, you can think of a memory as essentially or a memory representation as what's present in the brain or a sort of a trace that is formed through ways in which our neurons are wired together in order to represent an experience that we encountered in our daily experiences, or it could just be, you know, it could also be a representation of any sort of memory. It can also be procedural memory, for example. So that's what we essentially mean by representation. It's, it's another way of saying a memory trace or something in our brains that represents an experience that happened to us in our daily life. And and before we jump into what you have learned and what you reported in your study, um, I'd like to take a minute to think about who carried out this study. Because here on on this show, on Discipline, we'd like to understand the science stories and how they have streams of input from different sources. 
And I noticed that your studies authors come from four different institutions. Um, you're in the psychology departments in both Columbia and Harvard, and your co-authors are based at the University of Toronto and the Rotman uh, Research Institute of Baycrest Health Sciences, also in Toronto. And so I was wondering, how did you assemble this, this cross-institutional team? Yeah, it, it actually just happened uh, that way because of uh, the, the current timeline of, of where I am in my career. So uh, the senior author on the paper, Dr. Lynn Hasher, is actually my PhD supervisor when I, when I was doing my grad school in, in Toronto or at the University of Toronto. Um, and uh, the second author is also uh, one of my colleagues in grad school who currently is also in the same lab at Harvard. And I'm doing uh, a joint postdoc with two labs, one in uh, Columbia and one in Harvard. So that how it, that's how it led to this sort of uh, cross-institutional collaboration. It's just uh, it's sort of these relationships that have uh, been formed throughout my my career. Great, that's really interesting to know. I, I'm always curious about um, you know how people, how different scientists get together and say, hey, let's work on this. You have this, and I have that. And so it's it's wonderful to to hear about that in other studies. You know, I think that we tend to think that acquiring knowledge is a good thing. The more we know, the better off we are at solving problems, which, you know, makes perfect sense. But you and your co-author said that relying on prior knowledge shapes memory patterns in older adults, sometimes in negative ways, perhaps increasing this brain clutter we talked about. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, what aspect of your study, your data, really get at that particular point? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think... Uh... One thing to clarify first is this paper is kind of a, a review of many different studies that have uh, looked at a similar topic. So I can talk a little about some of the studies that have looked at how prior knowledge uh, in certain cases can uh, lead older adults astray. And for example, we provide certain examples of how prior knowledge can benefit memory when, when older adults are processing information that is consistent with prior knowledge. So uh, in a sense, if they can use that framework that they have. It helps them encode this new information and assimilate it to the information that they already have or the prior knowledge that they already have. But on the other side, there's also a negative aspect of over-reliance on prior knowledge. An example of that is if uh, you know, you're encoding information that is related to prior knowledge, you might be kind of filling in some of the information based on the information that you already have. So an example of that is in some studies, for example, you might encode a, a kitchen scene or something like that. And, and then in a memory task, they, uh, the researchers might ask you if you saw a picture of a kettle, even though the kettle was never presented in that scene, older adults are more likely to say that they have seen that kettle. One of the things that really fascinated me about your study was the way that you you were able to interweave the results of many other studies to provide kind of threads of evidence that you wove together to, to create this tapestry of understanding of brain clutter in older, in older adults versus younger adults. And I'm wondering how you, if you could describe how you went about finding these different threads of evidence to support the premise that you're putting forward. So it's uh, the aging literature and memories is growing and there's definitely a lot more studies that are uh, currently examining some of the benefits of the memory representations that we tend to find in older adults. One thing I should say is that the literature tends to focus on memory decline, like episodic memory decline, but there are some of these new studies that uh, there aren't a whole lot of them that are showing some of the advantages of uh, memory representations in older adults. And 
so we we know of these studies and we thought it would be a good opportunity to write this paper that uh, you know takes or amalgamates all these different studies in order to uh, propose the uh, certain advantages that we might see as a function of the representations of memory representations of older adults. Yes. And I guess, you know, as a person who's older myself, I'm 67 years old, I, I was really sort of pleased and cheered by the fact that although you use the term cluttered, you also suggest that this could be described as enriched memories or elaborated memories, and that these representations, although they might pose a challenge for retrieving target information, there might also be kind of a treasure in the clutter that can support other memory-dependent cognitive functions. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, about the positive aspects of brain clutter. Yeah, so uh, there are, we propose that there might be different types of tasks that might benefit from this clutter, or as you mentioned, enriched memories. And one example that we thought of might be uh, creativity. So, uh, you know, creativity is uh, thought to involve coming up with novel solutions by forming these broad associations between seemingly unrelated pieces of information. So uh, we think with the way that memories are structured in older adults, they might be able to perform better on creative tasks that require them to form these broad associations. So in, the, in, the, in terms of the threat of evidence of increased creativity, how was that measured? How do, you, how do you measure creativity? Or how the studies that you drew upon, how did they measure creativity in these adults? Yeah, that's obviously a very a growing field. And uh, there's a lot of interest in this uh, sort of creativity or cognitive function that um, is, um, uh, reflects creativity. And there are different tasks that are typically used in this field. So one of the tasks that has been used in uh, one of the studies that we, we cite in our paper is the alternate uses task. And essentially, uh, this task requires participants to come up with as many unusual uses for a particular uh, item, where essentially uh, they would, for example, you know, tell you to come up with uh, many unusual uses for a hammer. So instead of just hammering a nail, you might say uh, a hammer could be used as a paperweight or a doorstop and etc. I'm also wondering about another line of evidence that you brought. Um, what did you learn from neural imagery? You mentioned uh, in one part of your paper that different parts of the brain would light up. What, what is that all about? And what did, how did that shine light, so to speak, on your study? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, we can essentially use neural imagery to be able to in a way, probe the type of types of information that are available in the in older adults' memory representations. Um, so one example of that has to do with uh, older adults uh, using neuroimagery to see uh, what kind of information that older adults are maintaining access to in a, for example, in a working memory task. So for example, uh, in one study we would show older adults two images that show two categories of uh, of different objects, for example, uh, faces and scenes. And after they view those images, we would tell them to only focus on the faces. So in a sense, now they have to ignore the scenes. And what we typically see is that uh, unlike younger adults who only show activation that is indicative of maintaining access to uh, faces, older adults uh, show activation that is indicative of them in a way reactivating both faces and scenes. So in a in a sense, they're rehearsing both types of information or they're maintaining access to the types of uh, 
information that they're supposed to ignore as well as the ones that they're supposed to pay attention to. Wow. Interesting. Another kind, another facet of your study that I found interesting was that it is grounded in theory and, and you mentioned inhibitory theory and wondering if you could kind of tell us about, elaborate on that theory and why that relates to your study and what it, how it sort of generalizes out to other aspects of, of your specific work. Uh, sure. That's a great question. Uh, and the theory that is uh, mostly proposed by Dr. Lynn Hasher um, since the, I think in the 80s, proposes that um, younger adults are essentially more efficient than, young, than older adults at ignoring irrelevant information. So it could be irrelevant information that is present in the environment or even information from that is internally driven, like our own task unrelated thoughts, for example. And uh, in the case of older adults, we think that their reduced ability to ignore this information essentially leads to uh, more information being present in memory. And that is essentially what uh, kind of results in this clutter that we explain. Oh, you also mentioned another benefit, another potential benefit, in addition to increased creativity. You mentioned that the improvement of older adults' learning and memory with associations. Is that is that something that comes out of this sort of cluttered brain or elaborated representations? Do, do older adults learn better and have better memory? Yeah, so uh, that definitely depends on the context. So there are certain examples of how these cluttered memories can uh, provide an advantage in, in learning and memory. And an example of that has to do with how distractions can actually provide an opportunity for older adults to rehearse certain types of information uh, that they're supposed to remember. And uh, in these types of studies, essentially, we give older adults uh, a list of words to, uh, to try to study. And then uh, we, present, we, pre- we give them a seemingly unrelated task where some of these words are actually presented as distractors that they're instructed to ignore. And what we typically see is that relative to young adults who are, are successfully ignoring these words, older adults seem to actually uh, be using these distractors to rehearse some of the words that they're supposed to remember. So that when we uh, give them a memory task at the very end, they show reduced forgetting for the words that were presented as distractors. So in a sense, they were uh, those distractors gave them an opportunity to rehearse some of these words and uh, in a sense, enhance their memory. One thing you mentioned earlier as we were speaking is um, that there's a growing number of studies of, of, of memory retrieval in older adults. And I'm wondering, is that, a, so is that a function or a property of the fact that our, our population is aging? You know, I, as a boomer, I know that there, you know, we are all getting older and, and we represent this sort of demographic bulge in, in the, our population here in the United States. And wondering whether there's more and more interest in what exactly what you guys are studying. Or whether it's just sort of a, a this is this is a trend that we're interested in. Is it is it the preponderance of older people that's kind of promoting this greater interest and and greater emphasis on memory in older people? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's definitely a factor. We definitely have a growing senior population, and um, I think there's definitely more interest in uh, how we can explain memory patterns that we see in, in older adults. And uh, of course, there's there tends to be a focus on on the decline in memories that we see in older adults and how we can improve it. But as I mentioned, also, there is definitely an interest in in what older adults uh, seem to be doing better than younger adults. 
well, in some ways, as an older person, that makes me feel a little bit better. Um, from your, and I want to now sort of shift a little bit in our conversation and focus a little bit more on you as a researcher. And from your website, uh, which I read, I gather that the aim of your research is to shed light on the mechanisms that control cognition, and specifically those that concern the impact of episodic memory and our ability to remember the order of everyday life events. And I'm just wondering, you know, how did you get into this really fascinating but quite specialized interest? So initially, when I when I first started doing this research, I was uh, really interested in in these cognitive control mechanisms or mechanisms that are involved in um, essentially allowing us to engage in goal directed behavior and how they influence all sorts of different types of of cognitive functions. And the best one of the best ways to study this is uh, studying in a in an aging population where we know that these mechanisms tend to be reduced and uh, studying older adults that gave me an opportunity to study how these, uh, how these cognitive control mechanisms influence memory. And uh, from that, it kind of, you know, led to the chain of events where I started becoming more and more interested in, in the relationship between these uh, cognitive control mechanisms and episodic memories or essentially memories that are embedded in spatiotemporal context. So uh, it's really funny how research sometimes works. You start from one topic and then it leads to all sorts of different topics. Right, exactly, exactly. I'm wondering also about what the current challenges are in your subfield of research. Is, is it lack of funding? Is it techniques that you need? Is it, is it enough collaborators? Is like, what would be the boost that you need to make other breakthroughs? You know, if you had a magic wand to say, oh, if only I had this, you know, I could, I could really make progress. Funding is always an issue, of course. Uh, but uh, with respect to the kind of work that we do, we're, we're always advancing the techniques that we use in neuroimaging, especially with there's uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which fMRI that we use a lot in our research is as being advanced. And um, so I think one, but of course it has a lot of different, I should say, disadvantages or, you know, things that need to be improved in this particular technique. So I think just advancing how we analyze our data and, you know, controlling for all sorts of different noise that we tend to, that we tend to see with this type of technique is one thing that is, is definitely that people are working on and with more advancements in how we analyze neuroimaging data, I think we will be able to even understand more certain types of cognitive functions like memory. I, I noted that uh, uh, you received funding for this work from the National Sci Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada. And I'm, I'm wondering if there are other sources that were used to, to support this and, and how you went about getting funding for this really landmark study. Uh, yes, so I'm also funded by the Canadian Institutes of uh, Health Research. So yeah, that funds my uh, my postdoc work. It's it's also um, obviously from from Canada because I'm uh, I'm from Canada, and as as a Canadian, we have a, a few types of fund a few I guess types of funding sources and and yeah, as a postdoc, I'm, I'm that's where I get my funding from. Okay, great. I'm glad you're well supported. Your team has drawn data, you know, drawn information and data and insights from the past, and and you guys have created data for the future. And I'm wondering um, how you make your data available for others. Are they archived? Are they accessible? Or are they sort of packed in the literature so that that you know you have an insur an assurance that these data are available for others? 
Yeah. And uh, so for a lot of the studies, and that's a trend that we're seeing more and more, is that uh, you know, authors of different studies will make their data available for, for different researchers who they might want to reanalyze the data in a different way, or they see something that, you know, an interesting new analysis that they want to do in the same data. So usually researchers will make their data publicly available in these open access repositories for, for others to be able to access. It seems like your paper has attracted quite a lot of academic and popular attention. Um, and it doesn't surprise me because, you know, again, as an older adult, I'm always interested in knowing about how can I improve my memory. But did it surprise you at the, the amount of attention that your paper has received? I mean, it, it is always surprising when you when you get that much uh, attention, for sure. Uh, <laughs> we're always working on, on different papers, but I guess the, the topic might be a little more specialized or doesn't draw that much interest. I mean, I, I, I definitely kind of understand that it's a topic that interests uh, a lot of people. And in my experience, when we do research that shows some of the advantages that we see with aging, it, it tends to attract a little bit of attention because... <laughs> so rare that we get good news of getting older. <laughs> For sure. It tends to be a little yeah. reassuring. That's so funny. That's great. Uh, well, it's very well deserved. I just really thought your your study was so complete and had you know so much in it that and it was very clearly written. I really recommend it to our to our listeners. But I'm also wondering, and this is kind of a two-part question, whether there are any lessons here for someone older like me in terms of trying to declutter my memories. And the second part of that question is are there any lessons for people like you, younger people, to not accumulate memories that would later clutter your brain? Like, is there something we can learn from your study to either be preventative or to be therapeutic in terms of helping our brains do the best job that they can? That's a very good question. Uh, with respect to the first part, um, and this is not something that we particularly covered in, in the paper, but... One of the uh, things that is commonly reported is the best way for, for older adults to uh, kind of in a way slow down this cognitive decline is to stay both physically and mentally active. Some of the most robust evidence shows that exercise in a sense helps in a way uh, slow down cognitive aging or cognitive decline. And uh, older adults who tend to be physically active are the ones that are also uh, essentially showing better brain health and better performance and all sorts of different types of cognitive tasks. Another thing is also, as I mentioned, staying mentally active. So, uh, you know, putting yourself in environments that are intellectually engaging or stimulating uh, is another way of um, slowing down this cognitive decline. So trying to force yourself, yourself to learn something new, like learning a, mu a new musical instrument or even learning a new language. So relying less and less on the knowledge that you have and just forcing yourself to learn new things is one of the best ways of staying mentally active and, and improving performance. I see. That's fantastic. So if I go out cross-country skiing with a crossword puzzle in Arabic, that might actually help reduce my <laughs> brain my, or increase my brain capacity. So I'll keep that in mind. I was wondering, just two more questions. One is, what advice would you give to younger academics who might want to study in this field? What, what would be helpful to them? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And I think one of the most important things is trying to establish more direct links between 
the memory structure or representations that we see in older adults and performance on these everyday life tasks. We think that these uh, memory representations might provide an advantage on, uh, as we mentioned, creativity or even decision making, but we need to establish more direct links between these two things. So that is one thing that I think uh, that we should focus on to, to know exactly the relationship between these two different things. Well, that's very specific, very useful. And my final question for you, Tarek, is um, what is next for you? Are you going to be pursuing this line of research and going deeper, or are there other areas of cognitive psychology that you'll be exploring in the future? Uh, yeah, so I, I think definitely this is one of the areas that I'm, I'm still interested in. More broadly, I would say I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between these attention and cognitive control mechanisms and, and memory or essentially functioning of uh, structures in the brain that are thought to be particularly involved in memory and uh, how they're modulated by these attention mechanisms and uh, eventually uh, result in the structure of the memories that we see. And will you be doing this work, this future work at Harvard? Is that right? Or are you staying at Columbia or going back to Canada? What, what are your plans in terms of your your place of research? Uh, yeah, so f- for now, I'm still completing my postdoc. Um, and uh, hopefully soon, uh, I will be starting my own lab, but uh, that is still something in the works. Well, Tarek, thank you so much for your time. Um, We commend you and your co-authors for writing an amazing paper uh, that informs us of very important things in our lives, especially our older lives. So thanks again, and best of luck to you with the future research that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then... You can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>